Hello, I'm Abram Vanningen. And I'm Joanne Diaz. And this is Poetry for All. In this podcast, we read a poem, discuss it, learn from it, and then read it one more time. And today, we are joined by special guest, Professor Janica Bowman-Lewis, to discuss Francis Ellen Watkins Harper's Learning to Read. Janica is an associate professor of English at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. She is the author of Freedom Narratives of African-American Women, a study of 19th century writings. And she teaches courses that focus on race, gender, authorship, and African-American culture. She is also the author of two books for young readers, Brown All Over and Dr. King is Tired Too, co-authored with Dr. Mac Andrew Bowman. Welcome to the podcast, Janica. Thank you. Glad to be here. We are going to be reading Learning to Read by Frances Ellen Watkins Harper. Would you be willing to read this poem aloud for us? Of course. Learning to Read. Very soon, the Yankee teachers came down and set up school. But oh, how the Rebs did hate it. It was again their rule. Our masters always tried to hide book learning from our eyes. Knowledge didn't agree with slavery, t'would make us all too wise. But some of us would try to steal a little from the book and put the words together and learn by hook or crook. I remember Uncle Caldwell, who took pot liquor fat and greased the pages of his book and hid it in his hat. And had his master ever seen the leaves upon his head, He'd have thought them greasy papers, but nothing to be read. And there was Mr. Turner's Ben, who heard the children spell and picked the words right up by heart and learned to read them well. Well, the Northern folks kept sending the Yankee teachers down, and they stood right up and helped us, though Rebs did sneer and frown. And I longed to read my Bible, for precious words it said, But when I begun to learn it, folks just shook their heads and said, there is no use trying. Oh, Chloe, you're too late. But as I was rising 60, I had no time to wait. So I got a pair of glasses and straight to work I went and never stopped till I could read the hymns and testament. Then I got a little cabin, a place to call my own, and I felt independent as the queen upon her throne. Hmm. Oh, that's such a great reading. Thank that's you. so good. Janica, would you be willing to tell us a little bit about who Frances Ellen Watkins Harper was? Of course, of course. And um, Frances Ellen Watkins Harper is actually one of uh, my favorite poets, um, essay writers, uh, novelists, who between 1867 and 1869 um, toured the southern states, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, and Tennessee. But she was born to free parents in Maryland. And uh, she was orphaned at an early age. Her uncle was a pastor, the Reverend William Watkins, and he was an abolitionist, a community leader, and a highly regarded teacher. And he took her in and made sure that she received an education. And um, his school was the William Watkins Academy for Negro Youth, where she learned biblical studies, 
classics and oratory skills. And so I think it's important to think about this background of being born free, especially as an African-American woman and having this opportunity to, to get an education. So she did go to school until she was 13 and then did some domestic work. But while she was sewing and caring for, for children as a domestic worker for bookstore owners, she would read the books from the store stock. And so she wrote her earliest volume of poetry, Forest Leaves, in 1846, I mean, then worked as a teacher at Union Theological Seminary in Ohio, mm. and then in Little York, Pennsylvania. And so mm. she was constantly thinking about those back in her home state of Maryland. And, and she was in um, what's referred to as voluntary exile because of um, the various acts, the Fugitive Slave Act, etc., that um, she was subject to even if she was free, right? So mm. she could be harassed. She could be, you know, even taken if she were to visit her friends or family in, in Baltimore. And so she would write and she would publish poetry in response to her concerns uh, around enslavement and the hopes, the uh, promises of freedom. So she wrote Forest Leaves in 1846 and then poems on miscellaneous subjects uh, and had this long writing career, uh, three serialized novels that she published in 1859. Mm-hmm. So I could go on and on, but also the, the, the novel, Iola Leroy, which uh, many people know in the 1890s. And so um, this poem is, you know, amidst uh, all of that work in 1872, but mm-hmm. that just gives some context on, on her life. Can you talk about the poem itself and how... Harper is shaping the poem. One of the first things that leaps out to me as a reader is its structure and form and its voice. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I love the poetic speaker, the eye, and how immediate her, her her speech to us feels. But I'm also very interested in she seems to be using ballad meter or common meter. And I love that meter because it, so I'm just going to read the first stanza so that listeners can hear that, that beat, right? Very soon the Yankee teachers came down and set up school, but oh, how the Rebs did hate it. It was again their rule. So it's like a four beats against three beats and then mm-hmm. four beats against three beats. And I love that because um, it's like an even number against an odd number. And it kind of moves me along as a reader. Can you talk about that structure and why do you think that would have been compelling to her as a writer? Mm, that's a great question. And and you mentioned voice at first. And I think it's be, it, it's part of her um, kind of narrative structure in her poetry, but then also in her essays and her novel. And, and so it's almost storytelling uh, through the poem. And so it makes it kind of move along to get through the story, but also gives it some structure, as you mentioned, you know, ballad thinking about how to tell the story and, and what makes people follow along and connect. Well, it almost feels like, like, it definitely feels like ballads I've read in other contexts. And Mm -hmm. I love ballads because for poetry, it's like a really old structure where you can tell a personal story, but you can also tell a communal story. Absolutely. I I feel like this is a very communal poem in the sense that it's very social. Mm -hmm. It's very concerned with a lot of responses to reading and the ways in which other people are behaving as well as the poetic speaker, right? 
mean? Right. And and the use, and I know we'll get into you know, some of her, her language, but at the hour in us, it's telling a story not only about the, the voice of this um, speaker who is Aunt Chloe and the idea that she gives voice to an older African-American woman through the poem is important too, but how to pass the story along, which was, you know, done with ballads, right? Who yeah. it's being shared with, but also not just telling one person's story, but... Uh, a community story. Yeah, so it, it, she's bringing in all these other characters, right? So it's not just Aunt Chloe who she's voicing, but then you've got Uncle uh, Caldwell, and you've got uh, Ben, and you've got these other other characters in the mm-hmm. in the story. And it, the story is really about this learning to read, and uh, and each of these characters in the story are learning to read each in their own way. I wonder if you could just say a word about the power of that narrative, that story, and how often it was told in, in especially in the 19th century African-American literature. Absolutely. And in my book, Freedom Narratives of African-American Women, I'm looking at all of these uh, various um, freedom narratives, how uh, Black women writers look at freedom. But it wasn't, of course, just uh, the Black women writers. We can look um, anywhere from Phyllis Wheatley in 1773 to uh, Frederick Douglass in 1844. Um, Harriet Jacobs, thinking about where freedom comes from. And it is often very much connected to being able to understand um, and tell the stories of liberation and to know um, what other people's stories are. And it's very much tied to knowing what Harper writes in Iola Leroy, one of her characters wants to know what's in the papers. And you have to, you know, be literate. You have to be able to read not just papers, but also reading people's faces, reading, you know, the master's narratives. And here, Harper's thinking about not only reading as literacy, but reading as interaction with, you know, the Yankee teachers uh, and others. And so being able to understand a different story. There was just a, a recent piece in, in Commonplace online by a scholar named Madeline Zender. And one of the points that she makes is there are lots of different kinds of literacy going on precisely in this poem. So there's the literacy of learning to read, uh, which is in a certain sense, the subject of the poem. But it's also very clear that each of the characters in this poem has already attained a certain level of literacy about what this society is about, how people are going to interact with them, what they expect of them, how they're going to see them. And so they know that if they, for example, um, if Uncle Caldwell takes these papers, uh, puts them on his head. Uh, the the other person looking at him is just going to assume, oh, that he doesn't know how to read. He's just using it as a hat. And so he knows he can trick his way into literacy. Yes. Taking the pot liquor fat yeah. <laughs> to put it on the pages. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. It's an amazing image. And, it's, and it shows very clearly. Um, so we just did a, an episode not too long ago on Dunbar, uh, We Wear the Mask. And it shows very clearly that these characters put on a mask when it's needed in order to trick everyone who's looking at them. They they know how to put on the show that others expect to see and still pursue their own pursuits. Yes, absolutely. That they come from being able to read what will be dangerous from it for them and what people will um, you know just pass off. And I love in the second stanza, our masters tried to hide book learning from our eyes. Mm-hmm. So pointing to this idea that you know they are watching what is being uh, mm-hmm. you know kept and withheld from them. Right. So there's that amazing, powerful image of Uncle Caldwell who took pot liquor fat and greased the pages of his book and hid it in his hat, um, and then. The poem continues, right? So it seems as if, you know, Uncle Caldwell, 
He's um, put these greasy papers in his head, and no one would ever think that anyone would want to read those. But of course, that's his strategy, right? In right. order to read. And then the poem continues. And there was Mr. Turner's Ben, who heard the children spell and picked the words right up by heart and learned to read them well. Can you talk about the various scenes of reading that are being captured in this poem, the, the various methods by which people are acquiring reading? Absolutely. So, you know, on one hand, we have the book learning and the children who are learning to spell, learning to, you know, write out words, but also what overhearing um, those, the learning and those lessons. It's like, so Mr. Turner's been, here's the children uh, spelling and, and is learning from them as well. And then that's his pathway to learning to read. For Chloe, it wasn't enough just to learn to read. She wants to read the Bible. Mm-hmm. And she wants to read the hymns. And so it's, you know, that book learning, but also what does it translate into um, in terms of the value of each person learning what they need to learn? Well, and it's interesting thinking about who who opposes her at that point, because she's already talked about how these Yankees are going to come down and try to help them and how these Rebs did sneer and frown and so on. Mm-hmm. But then she gets to the point where she's going to start to read the Bible. She wants to pick yes. it up. And all yeah. she says is folks just shook their heads. And there's a kind of collapse of the Yankees and the Reds. It's almost like nobody's going to help this woman. She's just right. got to do it herself because everybody right. is is given up on her uh, and she's not given up on herself. Right. Absolutely. And and then you also have to think, you know, are they just shaking their heads because um, she's learning or because she's trying or for what that will reveal once she learns to read the Bible. Mm. And so a lot of enslaved communities, when they were allowed to you know, be exposed to religion until they became to interpret for themselves, the Bible was used to tell them why they should stay in a particular place. Right. So we would have messages of obedience and submission. But when they're able to read for themselves, then they can interpret, oh, well, you know, that's not the whole story. Right. <laughs> there's this whole Exodus so, story, too. <laughs> exactly. There's the Exodus story. And so um, for her being able to learn that it's it's not just, oh, you can't do it. But like what's going to happen when you when you do, mm-hmm. you know, as I hear you talking, I, I'm, I think I'm most moved by the stanzas in the poem when Chloe gets to herself. And I think the reason I'm so moved is not only because of everything you're saying, but also her age. Mm -hmm. She's, she's, you know, she's thinking of her mortality. She's thinking of her salvation. She's thinking of her spiritual health. And the way in which she's, she describes that response, folks just shook their heads and said, there is no There's use no in trying. Care. Oh, Chloe, you're too late. Mm-hmm. There's a way in which they're suggesting that there's not enough time for her to prepare herself for, for her end. And it's like, I, I, it, I think the reason I'm so moved by this poem is it takes that category, learning to read, that seems just like a practice that in a world of compulsory education, that seems like a fairly standard thing to try and do. But this takes that theoretical idea and makes it so personal and so individual and shows the reader how much is at stake, especially for Chloe. It's it's so poignant to me. And, and the urgency mm-hmm. with which she describes how she just decides to do it herself. So I got a pair of glasses and straight to work I went and never stopped 
so I could read the hymns and testament. It's, it's just amazing. That that language about longing too. Oh. I I love where that's placed. Like yeah. I longed to read. I I had to do it. I it you know it's just something that wasn't going to go away. And then when you get to that final stanza in the poem, maybe we could talk a little bit about the transformation of Chloe. Then I got a little cabin, a place to call my own, and I felt independent as the queen upon her throne. I I love, by the way, that rhyme between own and throne. Yes. Uh, It's so powerful. Can Mm. we talk about where the poem lands and what kind of aha moment that provides us with? Yeah. And when we think about freedom or liberation, at times it's tied to like a marriage narrative. I was able to get married. I was able to have children, et cetera. She's 60 or she's rising 60. Mm -hmm. And so what freedom looks like for her is having her own space, getting a cabin, a place to call her own, which it seems like she's never had. Mm -hmm. And that being the pathway to her independence and being the queen, like unassociated (laughs) from, you know, a king, unassociated (laughs) from, you know, uh, other people. And so it, it ends with her. It ends with her having her own space. Um, uh, and that's a, a narrative that we're, we're not always seeing and thinking about. And I thought about the cabin. I, in, I, I don't know if this is true. Maybe you can tell me what you think. Is the cabin literal as well as figurative? Is the cabin mm-hmm. a physical space as well as the space of the mind and of the spirit? It is. It is. Um, because that's where she feels independent. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where... Uh, she can kind of write her own story, right? Yeah. And and if, if we you know look at the voice here, we're looking in retrospect. I already got it. <laughs> this is this is where I am. Right? There's no one else in the picture, right? Like yeah. she, there is no one she needs to hide from at that moment. She has her cabin, a place to yes. call my own, and I felt independent as the queen upon her throne. And and even though we have other characters in the narrative, even thinking about um, the Yankee teachers coming down. The story that she tells is then kind of what happens from that, right? Mm-hmm. So they um, don't write her story of, of literacy and liberation. She's able to use the tools to then tell her own story. The I in this poem really matters. It is a, it is a poem about learning to read, but at the end of the day, it's a poem that you can almost imagine being written in that cabin where she ends yes. up. Like that's yeah. the space in which she is the one who is telling these stories. Mm-hmm. She is the one who is putting them down. And so, yes. and the eye that emerges from this, who's telling this story, there's a, there's a certain kind of power and drama to the very fact of this eye telling this story about these leaves. Yes. To whom do you think Harper is addressing this? Part? Like, for, who is her audience? So I, I think we can look at it in a few ways, because when we start talking about the hour masters and some of us would try to steal, mm-hmm. that makes me think it's kind of a, a, a reminder or narrative um, to the community. Right. Yeah. So remember how this happened and, and, and how the story gets uh, taken 
um, from the the moment of telling. And so I imagine, and, and we can think about the power of oral narratives, just in general, hearing this poem and then someone else taking it and then someone else taking it and it be what is repeated um, through families, through communities and generations. But also to a broader audience as a way of documenting the story, right? So in case people say, yeah. oh, well, there weren't these literacy narratives. Oh, it's not just me, but I remember Uncle Caldwell and, you know, Mr. Turner's been. And so it also allows insight into these communities that others wouldn't necessarily have been able to see. So unless she is documenting and telling the narrative, we don't know about the pot liquor fat on the pages of the book. We don't know about learning from the children. And so I think it, it goes from a community narrative to an even broader narrative to tell the stories that they would know otherwise about learning to read. That is awesome. And and that's why, again, that ballad form is so powerful because if, she's doing a few things with it that I really love. First of all, she's creating almost all of her quatrains, maybe except for one, they all end on a period, right? So mm-hmm. almost all of those four line stanzas are self-contained and you could actually easily memorize them one at a time. Mm-hmm. She's got that very explicit, clear rhyme scheme. And as I said earlier, that four beats against three beats actually makes it a little bit easier to memorize. So the poem is both communal and also portable, right? Mm-hmm. So that that. even though she's talking about printed reading materials in the poem, this is also a poem that could be read, it could be memorized, it could be set to a tune. Like there's, it's a very versatile poem in a lot of ways, no? Yeah. And that's actually what's happening within the poem too, right? <laughs> some are some are learning yes. uh, from the book and some are learning from uh, overhearing and some are learning from yeah. the story. And so I think yeah. that that replicates uh, to the, the portability of um, the process. Yeah, that's great. That's amazing. Well, with everything we've learned and, and, and spoken about here, would, would you be willing to read the poem again for us, Janica? Absolutely. Learning to read. Very soon, the Yankee teachers came down and set up school. But oh, how the Rebs did hate it. It was again their rule. Our masters always tried to hide book learning from our eyes. Knowledge didn't agree with slavery. would make us all too wise. But some of us would try to steal a little from the book and put the words together and learn by hook or crook. I remember Uncle Caldwell, who took pot liquor fat and greased the pages of his book and hid it in his hat. And had his master ever seen the leaves upon his head, he'd have thought them greasy papers, but nothing to be read. And there was Mr. Turner's Ben, who heard the children spell, and picked the words right up by heart and learned to read them well. Well, the northern folks kept sending the Yankee teachers down, and they stood right up and helped us, though Rebs did sneer and frown. And I longed to read my Bible. For precious words it said, but when I begun to learn it, folks just shook their heads and said there is no use trying. Oh, Chloe, you're too late. But as I was rising 60, I had no time to wait. So I got a pair of glasses and straight to work I went and never stopped till I could read the hymns and testament. Then I got a little cabin, a place to call my own, and I felt independent as the queen upon her throne. Ah, oh, <laughs> it's such a great poem. 
It's so great. Well, for more information about uh, Francis Allen Watkins Harper, please do visit our website at poetryforall.fireside.fm. And you can subscribe to Poetry for All wherever you get your podcasts. And please be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Thank you for listening. And thank you, Janica, for being here. Thank you. That was great. <laughs>